Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. Today is the 28th of May, 2021, and I'm pleased to have with us today Dr. Hong Tang, who is an oncologist with many years and decades of experience in medical research, and she's going to share with us her journey, her personal journey, thoughts about medical research, thoughts about cancer research, cancer treatment, thoughts about collaboration between uh, the U.S. and China in the field of research, various trends, and whatever else comes up. So with that, Dr. Tang, welcome to the Reorient Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Very nice to have you here. So we will have your CV on our website and people can look at your background. But I often like to invite our guests to just talk a little bit about their personal journeys. So can you share with us a little bit of you know where you grew up, how you grew up, and what brought you to the field, the career that you're working in at the moment? Sure. Yeah. I grew up in China. I immigrated to the United States in 1992. And I studied medicine in China, then also come over to United States to study my PhD study in clinical pharmacology at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. So later I decided to pursue my physician as a role to become board certified in internal medicine and practiced as an internist in Indiana for almost seven years. After that, I decided to pursue my research interest in medicine by working in National Institute of Health as a medical officer, monitoring NIH-sponsored basic and translational research in academic centers. After that, I decided to join a pharmaceutical company to work in drug development as well as medical affairs. In the past 15 years, uh, I worked in several pharmaceutical companies, including Bristol-Myers Squibb, Estellas, Juno, Dendrion, with increasing uh, responsibilities. So our audience is um, obviously very interested in Asia and, and uh, quite knowledgeable. Can you share us a little bit about where in China you grew up and, and what it was like to grow up at that time? And, and maybe um, if you were already interested in medicine at that, at that point or if that came later. Yeah, so I grew up in Anhui province and there is a place called Chaohu. It's uh, one of the uh, four big lakes in China. So I grew up in Chaohu City and Anhui province. I grew up in a farm and from young, I see my elder brother and often using herbal medicine to treat a you know, small illness. I think that picked my interest in medicine. So yeah, I just decided to go to medical school and become a doctor. Well, that's very interesting. So I guess my next question is, what kind of farm uh, did you grow up on? Yeah, just uh, more like uh, agriculture. We don't have a lot of animals, a little bit, like chickens, you know, pig. And the whole village share cows, several cows. Mm -hmm. And I have geese and ducks. So it's kind of interesting time. Whenever I think back, I really enjoy those memories. So Mm -hmm. actually, I ended up... uh, bought a rural land even in Washington here in the United States. feel like mm. going back to the roots, <laughs> so living yes. in a farmland, yeah. Yeah, well, that's a really, uh, I think that's, an, obviously China, 
you know, uh, maybe even around the time that you were growing up was around 80 percent, or I think, of people were were farmers or, or rural people that lived in rural areas. Um, yes. And um, and now with urbanization, China's it may be the opposite. Maybe only twenty percent of Chinese are farmers. Um, so it was yes. very common in, in in the time that you grew up. You're right. I went back to my hometown, like the village, uh, maybe 10 years ago. But at that time, only a few elderly uh, people there mm-hmm. because young people already went to cities to work. Mm. So you don't see many uh, young people in the villages anymore. Mm. And did you? where did you attend college? I attended both in uh, Hefei and uh, Guangzhou. Yeah, mm. so I studied a um, master's degree in Guangzhou, then later pursued the PhD here in the United States. Okay, and what was your um, focus in college in, uh, in Hefei or, or Guangzhou? Yeah, I was studying Chinese medicine, then later mm-hmm. studied Western medicine in Guangzhou. So yeah, so I knew a little bit of both. <laughs> yes, interesting. Um, well, just because we're you know, on that topic, Obviously, uh, Western medicine is, you know, you could say is the dominant form of medicine. And it's, you know, there's so much research and development and, and it's such a huge industry and it's very innovative and a lot happening. What's your view, and you're effectively working with Western medicine for your career, um, what's your view on the role of Chinese medicine today? Yeah, I, I see that maybe the principles can be used even for Western medicine, right? The principle is we not only treat the disease, we take care of the person, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, Chinese medicine often said we need to adjust the yin and the yang, you know, to balance the whole body. So mm-hmm. I think that principle is important. In, for example, in the United States, we have a lot of medicine uh, approved for cancer in the recent years. However, mm-hmm. the very limited option for cancer therapy induced toxicity, right? So patients feel like they have to fight a big war to fight cancer because they're prepared to lose hair, you know, to have low blood count or may get infection, many other side effects. So mm-hmm. I feel if we could put a little bit of attention to how to make the patient feel better, how to balance their body, you know, how to feel the, to have a better quality of life, how to make their uh, fighting cancer easier. So I think mm. this principle definitely is very applicable even in modern medicine. So to what extent um, has Chinese medicine trying to adopt Western scientific principles mm. to to really identify, to evaluate, you know, eff- efficacy. I think generally people view them as safe. There's just questions about how um, the degree of efficacy and, um, and and that maybe it's not subject to the same types of scientific uh, approach as Western medicines. Do you see that uh, having changed or, or will change not, at some point? Not to my knowledge. I figure, you know, Chinese medicine, because we're using the natural uh, herbs, right? So the the concentration of the active ingredient is relatively low. So in modern mm. medicine, we all, all often isolate the active ingredient and make it much more potent. So that's why you see it seems uh, the effect is very predominant. However, but Chinese medicine use multiple herbs to try to balance, you know, here and there with even mm-hmm. relatively low active ingredients. So I think uh, that uh, combination approach 
and don't ne- don't necessarily use a high concentration. Mm. So side effects is less. Understood. Now you know in the West, there's the whole supplements, uh, nutraceutical supplements sector has grown tremendously. There's a lot of interest in it. Do you see a strong parallel between supplements and, and Chinese medicines? Maybe to a certain degree, maybe less uh, regulated. You know, often we go to a GNC store, just buy something based on whatever the label said, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, the Chinese medicine, you have very systemic training and approach. We know how to balance the yin and yang using different herbs. But, you know, mm. the supplement to a certain degree to, 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 to do that, but um, more patient decide, right? We, like me, go to GNC. I really don't know much mm. about the individual ingredient, but just read the label and take it from there. Yeah, sure. I do think, um, in fact, we're going to have on our podcast someone who's focused on health and fitness. But uh, it does seem that there are um, many people who spent their careers on on sort of nutrition, and, and many of them really do spend a lot of time looking at the chemical or the chemistry of, of different uh, ingredients and supplements. Um, but um, okay, interesting. So tell us a little bit how you got into oncology. Was it related to your PhD work? And what's your path to, to coming to the field of cancer? Sure. Yeah, it is a little bit interesting. So I joined a pharmaceutical company initially at Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, mainly focused on hepatitis B because hepatitis B is an Asian population-dominated disease. And mm-hmm. However, over the time, we I feel I need to expand my area of focus. And that time, I choose oncology mainly because both my parents died of cancer. So that gave me an extra incentive to do something in that area. I feel I may not be able to help my parents, but I hope I could contribute to other cancer patients. So that's Mm -hmm. the reason I choose to go to oncology. And about when was this? Yeah, that that happened in 2013. So when BMS developed immunotherapy, so that's when I switched over to uh, immuno-oncology. And what kind of work did you do and have you been doing in immunology? So we were at that time developing one of the drugs called anti-PD-1 monoclonal antibody, uh, right now being approved for treating all kinds of cancer. But at that time, we were preparing for the product to be launched into the market. So we tried to prepare all kinds of education material to support both physicians and doctors. So we also planned some of the trials clinical trials to see in what additional areas we could study. So, yeah. Sorry, and can you tell us a little bit more about the specific therapy or product that you were looking to develop? So, yeah, that, that drug called uh, Nivolumab, and the trade name is uh, Opdivo, that was uh, initially was uh, studied for lung cancer, also kidney cancer, but now being approved for you know, dozens of cancers. So, you know, you know immuno-oncology tried to be studied in almost all the cancers. But uh, yeah, that time, the initial indication was for lung cancer. And this is at Bristol-Myers Squibb? Yes. Okay, sure. All right, so maybe take us to um, On Quality Pharmaceuticals, where you're the chief medical officer. Um, Tell us a bit about the background uh, of this company and how you came to to work, join them, and become their uh, CMO. 
Yeah, so um, you know, obviously, I've been in United States working for different company for a while. When oncology uh, approached me, talked to me about this uh, oncology on cancer supportive care, I thought it's very much needed because it was my own experience dealing with uh, not only immunotherapy, later with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor for cancer. We realize how much the side effects are, and and unfortunately there are not many options available. So I do feel that's a very much um, met areas. So I thought it would be good for me to to do something in that area. Now this is a Shanghai-based company. Um, yes. How did they find you in Seattle? Yeah, you know, we, nowadays we have LinkedIn and then we have recruiters. So they contacted me through LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and this is an early stage company, I believe. Um, you've yes. worked for some major, you know, uh, large multinationals. Um, yeah. How uh, sort of in terms of the, the research and development, uh, how is it different working for a, a early stage startup versus a, a major um, pharmaceutical company? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a natural progression. Earlier when I joined the large pharmaceuticals such as Bristol-Myers-Squibbs or Astellas, they provide a lot of opportunity to train me, right, to, to mm-hmm. give all kinds of education. So I feel I benefited tremendously from those resources. But over time, I feel I, I was well prepared. So to join a startup, um, you feel like you're able to oversee and the overall company development and, and become more entrepreneur. So I mm. do feel those, those years of training, it's a very important. So tell us just maybe quickly about the company, um, its scale, its operations, its mission. Sure, yeah. Right now, it's, it's still a small uh, startup. So in Shanghai, we have an office and maybe have, uh, and you know, it depends on the time, maybe around 15 to 20 people. And, you know, in U.S., we have four or five people. You know, some of them are part-time, too. So maybe four-time employees, around 20 total. So, so yeah. in the U.S., there's no office. It's people working from home. Yes, working from mm-hmm. home. You know, we were going to look for office, but the pandemic, you know, the COVID-19 mm-hmm. kind of delayed that because we really feel there is no need to have a physical office. Okay. Now, um, you're working on cancer supportive care, which is really helping to treat the side effects, if I understand correctly, of cancer treatment. Because when you have cancer and you have uh, undergo treatment, there'll be all kinds of side effects that do a lot of harm or damage uh, on the body. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so um, my first question is, is the the products that you are developing, are they targeting all types of cancer treatments or is it are they really aimed at one or you know specific forms of cancer treatment the, treating the side effects of a limited number of cancer treatments so yeah it's a uh, it's an interesting question so we more looking at the uh, what class of drug called what side effects so we try to target a certain class of drug with certain common almost debilitating side effects so, for example, for the EGFR receptor inhibitors, which we have more than a dozen drugs approved in the United States, the most common side effects is hand-foot-skin reaction. Sorry, just if I can interrupt, can you tell us what an EGFR drug inhibitor is for our yeah, audience? So- 
yeah, it's a it's a kind of a, a long you know. So E means epidermal, you know. G is growth factor. G F is a, a factor. Then receptor inhibitor. So mm. yeah, EGFR receptor inhibitor. So the, this um, uh, receptor are heavily involved in blood vessel um, development. So once you inhibit it, you will cut off the blood supply to cancer, which is good. We want to right. Stop so the way to, that they try to kill the cancer is inhibiting the blood supply to the cancerous cells through this yeah. epidermal growth uh, factor, fa- inhibitor. factor inhibitor. Okay, mm-hmm. but that has some side effects. Yeah. So, but it, because we also have those. Uh, uh, vascular induced, uh, you know, I'm sorry, vascular endothelial growth factor receptor, so v- VGF inhibitor. So um, also those uh, receptor also on in hands and feet. So when the cancer drug inhibits those area, cause rash or even blisters or you know mm. ulcers, so it could be very very painful. And would this be sort of standard chemotherapy? Uh, chemotherapy would be uh, the drug that would be using this EGFR inhibitor? Yeah, so this is what we call targeted therapy. Basically, they target a certain pathway. We call it EGFR okay. receptor signaling pathway. So uh, mm-hmm. we call it targeted therapy. It's different from the traditional chemotherapy, which causes hair loss, you know, the nausea. Oh, I see. Okay. Now, you know, because there are cancers that generally target, the cancer generally does evolve in a specific part of the body, like an organ. So the most common would be lung cancer or breast cancer or colorectal cancer, Mm -hmm. prostate, etc. So can you explain sort of how these cancer drugs, again, the EGFR inhibitor, are Mm -hmm. they are they actually focused on that specific area where the cancer cells are growing? Yeah. So, so EGFR uh, receptor upregulated in certain cancers. The most common are liver cancer, uh, kidney cancer, some thyroid cancer, even, uh, you know, some other uh, smaller cancers. But, uh, you know, the most common are kidney cancers. Uh, liver cancer is quite common in Asia. So, yeah. So mainly are uh, those drugs are approved for those kind of cancers. All right. I need to clarify that is. VEGF receptor inhibitors, which stands for vascular endothelial growth factor receptor inhibitors that cause hand-foot skin reaction, not EGFR inhibitors we have been talking about. EGFR inhibitors cause rash on face, upper back, and chest. Yeah, so go back to the original topic. VEGF receptors are upregulated in certain cancers, most common ones are lung cancer, kidney cancer, certain thyroid cancer, but the most common one is kidney cancer. Liver cancer is quite common in Asia. So yeah, VGF receptor inhibitors are approved for those kinds of cancers. So the drug treats those cancers and the cancer's growth is in a specific part of the body. However, the side effects of those drugs are throughout the body and, yes. and very apparent as you mentioned, in the hands and the feet. So no matter where the cancer is, whether that's in the thyroid or the liver or the kidney, the side effects will actually often appear in the same areas. Uh, You're right, especially on the hands and feet, mainly because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of blood vessel. Also, hands and feet are often under pressure and friction. So that's Mm -hmm. why they develop, you know, rashes or ulcers because we see. Thank you for listening. 
We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.